0: welcome to another edition of A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Today is Saturday, October the 3rd, which means a lot of football. But hey, I also have some baseball updates and also what conferences are looking at starting their football season. So stay tuned to A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. I'm your conductor, Anthony Smith. And guess what? The show is coming up next. So stay tuned. Grab your ticket. Get on board and enjoy the ride. A-Train Sports Talk Podcast coming to you on a Saturday, October 3rd, College Football Saturday.
1: Get lined up, Trash pulls it out into the end zone Juggled and cut, touchdown Whittemore He squeezed it after it bounced off his hands Catch on the play, setting up a third down and nine Over the middle, wide open first down and then some Tony, still on the move, the turbo kicking in Tony TNT, touchdown Gators
0: Welcome into a Saturday, October the 3rd, and do we have a lot of football action. What you just heard there, starting off the show, was highlights from Florida and South Carolina Gamecocks, a game in which the Gators won by a final of 38-24. Uh, we have some games in progress right now on a Saturday football afternoon. Right now with 11 minutes and 41 seconds to go in the second quarter, Texas A&M and Alabama is all knotted up at 14 apiece. That game could be seen on CBS. And right now with 11 minutes and 35 seconds in the second quarter to go, uh, North Carolina has the ball fourth and 12 on their 33, and they are holding on to a one-point lead, 14-13 over Boston College. Right now on ESPN Plus, or oh, the North Carolina Boston college game can be seen on ABC. Also in the second quarter with 8.29 to go. And right now, USF has the ball. 30 11 on their 30. Number 15 ranked Cincinnati is beating USF by a score 7 0. Also, keep in mind, North Carolina is ranked number 12 going into the rankings this week. Number 17, Oklahoma State has the ball with seven minutes and 24 seconds to go in the second quarter, playing against the Kansas Jayhawks on their homecoming, and Oklahoma State is not being a nice guest, as right now they are pitching a shutout with 7.24 to go in the second quarter, and they have the ball third and five on their 23-yard line. They are blanking Kansas right now 24-0. to A game that would probably be considered a shocker, considering it's number 25, Memphis, with 951 in the second quarter, or it may be coming up on half. To, no, at 951 in the second quarter. Right now, Memphis is facing a deficit as they are down to SMU by the score of 24-3. Of course, I shared highlights with you of number three, Florida against South Carolina, a game in which they won 38-24. to 24. Somebody that's presumed to be on a hot seat going into this season was Coach Herman at Texas. So how did his longhorns fare today? Let's see. From
1: T.C. out of a timeout, shotgun step back Ellinger, pressure coming, Sam steps up in the pocket, throws deep on the middle, ball caught, say goodnight to this one, Brennan Eagles. A 45-yard straight to the end zone. Now Sam Ellinger, a little bit of pressure, stepped up in the pocket and threw a dime to Brennan Eagles. Nobody down the seam. Out in front of number 13. Shotgun snap to Allinger. Sam swings it out to Roshan Johnson. Turns inside the five. Roshan to the goal line. Touchdown, Texas. Roshan Johnson gets it across for the score. And the Longhorns convert fourth down into six points. Well, a lot of confidence in your quarterback to put it in the air on fourth down. And then Johnson had to make the move. Second and six. It's a keeper for Duggan. Up the middle. 20, 15, 10, 5. Touchdown, Max Duggan. Scores it here from 26 yards out. The Hortrogs with the touchdown. TCU goes up 32-29 with 4-0-1 to go, and I think he go for two here. Uh, Texas is in that strange alignment, Brian, where they don't have anybody between the hash marks. Another quarterback, Ellinger, this time. Snap comes back. Give it to Ingram up the middle. Frogs wrap him up. Awesome one on the play. And now that ball popped out of the end. The Frogs say they have it. Let's see what the officials come up with. TCU has the ball. Wallow, Wallow hit him. TCU says it's horn-frog football, and it is. Keontae Ingram fumbled this one, trying to reach out across the goal line. Wallow knocked it loose. TCU comes up with it with 2.32 to go. Oh, my. That's a huge That's the play. There's a fumble recovered by the defense. First down, TCU. Corey Bethley comes up with the fumble as Ingram tried to reach out to get it across the goal line. And that ball pops loose, and it is loose up before he comes down. Back to throw with some time over the middle. Ball caught. Touchdown, Texas. Jake Smith, his first touchdown of the season, just breaks the plane of the goal line to get the Longhorns on the board. Well, welcome back, Jake Smith. Had a touchdown in the Alamo Bowl win, and now, boy, Ellinger took a pop on that play as he had to wait. D. Winters got a pretty good hit, but Jake Smith finds his way right to the goal line. Let's look from TCU, out of a timeout, shotgun step. back to Ellinger. pressure coming, Sam steps up in the pocket, throws deep up the middle, ball caught. say goodnight to this one, Brennan Eagles, a 45 yard, straight to the end zone. Six, it's a keeper for Duggan, up the middle, 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown, that's Duggan, scores it here from 26 yards out. Now the Hortons with the touchdown.
0: And what you heard right there was the go-ahead touchdown by TCU. So, final score in that game, TCU 33, number nine ranked Texas 31. So, Texas takes a loss, one I'm pretty sure they could not afford to take. So, I'm pretty sure the Wolves will be howling for Todd Herman's job at Texas. He was already on a hot seat coming in. Only thing that could possibly save his job is the Red River Shootout, or whatever they call it. I remember them calling it the Red River Shootout. I know they did away with that name because of, it sounds violence in the culture that we're in. But the only thing that could possibly save Coach Herman's job is a victory over OU in the Red River Shootout. So that leads into my next game. How did number 21 Tennessee, got used to saying Tennessee ranked period, but number 21 Tennessee took on Missouri today in an SEC battle. And let's see how that one turned out.
1: You see, they come around and kick him out. Nice block on the outside. I hear it correct. Arantana tried to keep it and use that six-four frame, but they're going to say, "Did he get in?"
0: So that was highlights from Missouri-Tennessee, a game in which Tennessee didn't have too much of a problem as they knocked off Missouri, 35 to 12. A game involving number 24-ranked Pittsburgh against NC State. You're
1: going to have to a here at the bottom. That's a Mezzi who makes the catch. It's a touchdown for NC State against Jason Pennock. And uh, Mezzi has come up with the score with 23 seconds left. And this is... in perfectly executed back shoulder pass unless he does a nice job of not pushing off just falls away catches the ball is able to get his feet down
0: so in a game where another ranked opponent goes into and takes another loss on the chin so these are two ranked teams thus far they have took losses on their home turf Texas and now Pittsburgh and they come up one point short And they lost to NC State by the final count of 30 to 29. So, let's go on to a little bit of NFL news because I'm pretty sure you all know the news right about now. But the NFL is dealing with some COVID 19 outbreaks. First, the timeline of the NFL COVID 19 outbreak, how positive tests. An NFL coronavirus outbreak almost seemed inevitable. Here's a timetable of how the week unfolded for the Titans. So, the timeline of the NFL COVID 19 outbreak, how positive tests led to postponed games. The NFL knew it would likely have to deal with the coronavirus pandemic at some point when it proceeded with the 2020 season. At the end of the day, the safest teams and the healthiest teams this year is going to be the one that's going to be playing in January and February. We can only control what we can control with Tennessee Titans safety. Kevin Byard said in August, the Titans became the first NFL team to experience a COVID-19 outbreak. The number of positive tests is now up to 18, and the Titans game against the Pittsburgh Steelers, originally scheduled for Sunday, has been postponed. The Titans maintain they have adhered to NFL, NFLPA protocols and procedures. Contact tracing was initiated as soon as positive tests were received, according to the Titans coach Mike Vrabel. Players and select team employees were a a proximity recording device that tracks infections with others who wear the device. Anyone who was in close proximity to a person who tests positive is subject to multiple tests. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the coronavirus has an incubation period that can last up to 14 days. An infected person can be contagious up to 72 hours before they even begin showing symptoms. While the Titans were the first team to be affected, they weren't the last. Here is a timeline of how everything unfolded for the Titans and the NFL leading up to Saturday's decision to postpone the New England Patriots-Kansas City Chiefs game as well. September 24, Titans defensive back Greg Mabin test positive. Mabin was removed from the team facility after receiving a positive test, according to April. According to he was placed immediately into the protocol. At Add, added variable, when he tested positive, he was removed from the building. He was quarantined, and those individuals that were close contact with him were also rested and went through their protocol as well. The Titans signed Maben to their practice squad on September 21st to add depth. There are new procedures for bringing in a free agent due to the pandemic. When you try players out. They go through a process of testing and quarantine before you work them out. And then, when you work them out, you decide to sign them or not. And then, they're into the testing protocol, Vrabel said on Thursday. At that point in time, when he tested positive, we went through and followed the protocol and he was removed from the facility. September 26, Titan outside linebackers coach Shane Brown test positive. The Titans received Bowen's positive test last Saturday morning. Bowen didn't make the team. The Titans trip to Minnesota to play the Vikings. When we get the results early in the morning, Todd Torricelli, director of sports medicine, and his staff and Adrian Dixon, assistant athletic trainer, begin to contact Tracy. They do the follow-up testing, and then we proceed from there with the protocol as it relates to any of the positives that come up variable said thursday there is a poc test which happens and we're very confident that we followed the guidelines of the protocol that the league and the players association have set forth as it relates to identifying those persons of close contact and by using the tracing devices september twenty-seven, titans played vikings in minnesota the Titans defeated the Vikings with Vrabel calling the defensive plays in place of Bowen, who did it for the first two games. No Vikings have tested positive since the Titans game. September 28, news breaks of Browns of Bowen's positive test. Vrabel confirmed Bowen had a positive test and didn't make the trip to Minnesota. He said Bowen wasn't with the team and that the Titans had followed the NFL NFLPA procedures. I'd say we followed all the protocols as it relates to COVID. Verbal said, we're following the hundred memos that they've sent out verbatim. September twenty ninth, Titans eight. Titans have eight more positive tests. The Titans received new positive tests from three players and five staff members. They placed defensive lineman Daquan Jones, long snapper Bo Brinkley, and practice squad tight end. Tommy Hudson, on the reserved COVID list. All in-person activities at the Titans facility were suspended, but the week four game in Nashville against the Pittsburgh Steelers had not yet been impacted. We've been given a mandate to prepare as if the game is going to be played and played on time, Steelers coach Mike Tomlin said. The Vikings received news of the additional positive tests and closed their facility along with putting a halt to all in-person activities. Titans positive tests Four players, 16 personnel members. September 30th, another Titans test positive. Outside linebacker Kamali Correa was placed on the reserved COVID list. Vrabel was preparing the team to play as early as Monday. According to Vrabel, players who were in need of treatment were able to enter the facility to see the athletic trainer staff, training staff. Anyone who entered the building was required to wear a mask at all times. Vrabel also said some of the players who tested positive were experiencing flu-like symptoms, but he anticipated that they will feel better shortly. Minnesota reopened its facility with enhanced protocols. ESPN Vikings reporter Courtney Cronin reported that everyone entering the building had to have a negative PCR test and a negative point-of-care test, nasal swab with results available in 20 minutes. Titans positive test, five players, 16 personnel members. October 1st, two more Titans test positive. NFL postponed Steelers versus Titans. The Titans placed cornerback Christian Fulton on the reserve COVID list. An additional unnamed team personnel member also tested positive. According to a statement, the NFL's decision to move the game to a later date was made to ensure the health and safety of players coaches and game day personnel. Vrabel told the media, the Titans were very confident that we followed the guideline with the protocol that the league and the Players Association have set forth. The Titans facility remained closed. All players, coaches, and select team members continued testing while the team was on this bye week as a result of the postponement. Vrabel delivered news of the postponement to the Titans during a virtual team meeting at 8.30 a.m. The Titans turned their attention to their Week 5 opponent, the Buffalo Bills. We had a squad meeting to inform the team that in light of the two recent positive tests that we we had, the NFL had made the smart and safe decision to postpone our game and that we would be on a bye week starting now. Vrabel said, we reminded them to not gather with each other Players and staff until we can find a safe way to enter and back to our building, hopefully, which would happen Monday or Tuesday, and we would then begin preparation for Buffalo. The NFL also issued a memo with enhanced protocols for teams to follow after exposure to the COVID 19 virus, including two daily tests. PPE and face masks must be worn by all players and coaches on the practice field. And gloves must be worn by everyone except quarterbacks on their throwing hand. All meetings must be virtual and there will be and there will also be daily deep cleanings of the facility. The protocols also prohibit team or player gatherings away from the facility. Titans positive tests, six players, seventeen personnel members. October the second. Two more Titans test positive. NFL reschedules Steelers versus Titans for week seven. The Titans placed wide receivers. Adam Humphreys and Cam Batson on the reserved on the reserve COVID list. Both the Titans and the Steelers now have week four as their bye week Officials from the NFL and NFLPA visit Nashville to look further into the outbreak situation. The NFL released another memo, this time outlining procedures during the bye week and testing cadence. The statement reminds players there is a $50,000 fine for missing a test. A second missed test results in a one-game suspension. Any player that misses a daily test without authorization during the bye week must have five negative PCR tests taken 24 hours apart before re-entering a team facility. Titans Positive Test, eight players, 17 personnel members. October 3rd, multiple NFL positive tests. The Titans received another positive test for a player and two for team personnel members. News broke that New England Patriots quarterback Cam Newton had tested positive on Saturday morning. ESPN's Adam Schefter reported that, per a source, the Patriots did mass testing and retesting, and there was no immediate spread. Schefter also reported that Sunday's Patriots versus Chiefs game would likely be moved to Tuesday. Chiefs practice squad quarterback Jordan Te'amu also tested positive for the coronavirus, according to a source. Titans positive test, nine players, 19 personnel members. So there you have it. Some college football updates and the corona outbreak with the Titans and at least two more players outside of the Titans. One mainly Cam Newton contracting the coronavirus. So what I'm going to do right now I'm going to take a break because I went a little bit long-winded on this one first segment but it was well worth it. So this train is still building up ahead of steam and I hope you're enjoying the Saturday college football and football in general report. So stay tuned A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. I'll be back with you after a word from my sponsor.
1: His back base hit right field. Contreras to the plate on a bounce. Oh, what a play right here. Jay Hay breaks his bat in half, gets enough of it, muscles it into right field. i got to think that maybe Contreras didn't get a great jump off of second base because I didn't see this, this play being this close. But Matt Joyce comes up. One, two, three perfect one hop that's great execution
2: right there great tag by Wallet
0: so I welcome you back in with that baseball clip so the question is especially considering centered around the Miami Marlins. Will Miami's surprising run continue? Well, here's a first look at the Marlins versus Braves National League Division Series. Two National League two NL East teams advancing to face each other in Major League Baseball playoffs is no surprise. The fact that the Atlanta Braves are in the NLDS again is anything but shocking. But that they are facing the Miami Marlins and not the Phillies, Nationals, or Mets. Well, nobody saw that coming. After rolling through a wild card series, sweeping the Cubs, the Marlins will enter this matchup in an underdog role once again. Here's what you need to know as the two National League East foes head to Arlington for their NLDS matchup. Why this NLDS is worth the hype. If you wanted March Madness in October, the Marlins are for you. This is the Cinderella nobody saw coming, getting past the household name in the opening round and hoping to make the run last as long as possible. Sixto Sanchez is must watch when he's on the mound for Miami as the emerging ace of a dynamic young pitching staff. Sterling Marte came over at the trade deadline and adds a multi talented skill set to the lineup. Not many people expected to see the Marlins here, but this team is still a lot of fun to watch. Atlanta's offense is as good as any in the majors. Ronald Acuna and Ozzie Albies are two of the most exciting players in the game, and Freddie Newman is a top candidate for National League MVP honors. The big question mark is the pitching. But if you haven't seen Max Freed and Ricky Ian Anderson yet, you are in for a treat. Numbers to know. Series odds. Braves have a 70.7 chance of winning series. Season series, Braves won 6-4. to four. So here's the series schedule. Game 1, October 6th on FS1 or MLBN, which is the Major League Baseball Network. Game 2, Wednesday, October 7th on FS1. Look like most of these games are going to be on FS1 or MLBN. Game 3, October 8th. Game 4, October 9th. Game 5, October 10th. Game 4 and 5, if necessary. So how did the teams get here? Well, let's take a look. Braves, led by their high-scoring offense, the Braves cruised to the National League East crown with a 35-25 record that netted them the number two seed in the National League. With Freeman and Acuna Acuna leading the way, Atlanta finished second in the majors and runs scored with just one fewer than the major league than MLB best Los Angeles Dodgers. Wild card series, they defeated Cincinnati 2-0. The Marlins were 301 with 300-1 to, to win the World Series when odds posted for the season start in July. There were questions about whether or not the team would actually be able to complete a season when a COVID-19 outbreak hit the clubhouse. But Miami's young pitching and emerging lineup continued to defy odds and locked up the National League's number 6 seed as the NLE's second-best team behind the Braves. Wild Cross Series? They defeated Chicago 2-0. Keys for the Braves. One, Max Freed and Ian Anderson need to be great again. Against the Reds, Freed tossed seven scoreless innings and Anderson tossed six scoreless innings. That picks up from what they did in the regular season when Freed went 7-0 with a 2.25 ERA and Anderson went 3-2 with a 1.95 ERA in the first six starts of his career. What's interesting is how they do it. While high-spin fastballs are all the rage, Freed and Anderson both rely on low-spin fastballs. Freed ranks in the bottom 12th percentile of fastball spin, while Anderson in the 9th percentile. This creates late sink and induces soft contact. Indeed, Freed ranked in the 98th percentile in hard hit, and Anderson in the 80th, which helps explains why Freed allowed just two home runs In 56 games. And Anderson won in 32.1. Anderson also mixes in a low spin curveball. That has been effective. The problem for the Braves is that while those two started 100% of the games against the Reds. They may only start 40% of this series. If it goes five games. The rest of the rotation. A big problem which is why the Braves finished 28th in the majors in rotation ERA. Kyle Wright is probably the number three starter after finishing the regular season with two good outings, two runs, and 13 innings against the Mets and Red Sox. But after that, it might be a whole lot of relievers. That's not a worst-case scenario, given the depth of the Atlanta bullpen. We saw how deep it is in that 13-inning game. But that also means it's imperative Freed and Anderson give some length in their outing so the bullpen can go full bore the rest of the series. Watch the strikeouts, we know how powerful this lineup is. With help from that 29 run game against the Marlins, they finished just behind the Dodgers for most runs per game. in The majors set a modern record, modern franchise record with 5.80. Freeman, Marcel Azunia, and Acuna finished second, third, and sixth with the majors in WOBA and there is plenty of depth with Travis D'Arnod, Albies, Adam Duvall, and Dansby Swanson. If the offense has one potential Achilles heel, however, it's that the Braves do strike out a lot. They had third-worst whiffs in the majors, 21st overall in strikeout rate, and we saw Trevor Bauer and Luis Castillo carve them out, carve them up in the wild-card round. The heart of the order is Tough to navigate through. Tough to navigate though, as Freeman actually had more walks than strikeouts, and Azunia had a below-average strikeout rate while walking a career-best 14.2% of the time. There was a lot of bad pitching in the NL East this year, but the Braves won't be facing the back end of the Mets or National staff like they did in the regular season. In fact, while they slugged over 500. Against the Mets, Nationals, and Phillies, they were under 500 against the Marlins, despite that 29 run outburst, and hit just .239, .316, .420 in 20 games against the AL East. Will Mark melikon lock down the ninth inning? The Braves finished fourth in the majors with a 3.40 bullpen ERA and maybe. That even undersells things a little bit because of the seven relievers who appeared against the Reds. Only Will Smith had a season ERA on the wrong side of 3.0. He allowed seven home runs in 16 innings. They have flexibility, Tyler, Masick, Smith, and Grant Dayton from the left side and a deep group from the right side. What's interesting is the closer is arguably the last, the least dominant of the group, as Melikon had just fourteen strikeouts in the twenty-two and two-thirds inning. Melacon was eleven for thirteen and save opportunities in the regular season, but he did allow just one home run on the year and tossed two, one-two-three innings against the Reds. Still, he's the type of closer you feel like you have a chance against, and he did blow the first game of last year's division series against the Cardinals. When he allowed four runs. When I come back. I will give you keys for the Marlins. So stay tuned. A train sports talk podcast. This train is still building up a head strength So stay tuned. I'll be back after this word from a sponsor. Okay. Welcome back. And now we are going to look at the opposing team, the keys for the Marlins. One, they need to follow the Reds' pitching roadmap. With a couple of days off, the Marlins can reset their rotation before kicking things off with with Atlanta, with Sandy Alcantara and Sixto Sanchez ready to match up with Max Freed and Ian Anderson. That will be two really good matchups composed of four really young starting pitchers. The Marlins need to hold their own in this area because their bullpen is not as good as that of the Braves. However, if Miami can take one of the first two games, you can argue that the starting pitching matchups after that night swing in their favor. That would have been the case for the Reds had they been able to muster the modicum of offense that their pitchers needed to bring home to set up a deciding game three. As dynamic as Alcantara and Sanchez have been at times and promised to be in the future, they were not established at the level of Cincinnati's Trevor Bauer and Luis Castillo. Bauer and Castillo went about attacking the Atlanta lineup in different ways, which makes sense. Bauer throws about 26 different pitches, but a changeup isn't one of them, at least not very often. For Castillo, it's all about setting up one of the base one of baseball's best change-of-pace offerings. All of the Marlins' probable starting options feature changeups, with Sanchez and Pablo Lopez throwing them as often during the season as Castillo. However, Castillo slashed the usage of his change to about 19% during his outing in the wild-card round, 10% below his norm. The reason for that might have been that Atlanta's lineup is full of masters who get fat, by sniffing out off-speed stuff. Freeman, Ozuna, Duvall, and Austin Riley combined for a 1.152 OPS against change-ups during the season. Castillo pitched well by laying off a bit of his bread-and-butter pitch. The Marlins hurlers might have to do the same, but it's going to be a delicate balance. No team in baseball did more damage on fastballs than Atlanta during the season. That balance might be found in videos of how Bauer and Castillo approached their outings. Don't follow the Reds' hitting roadmap. ERA doesn't always tell the full story, but Atlanta's collective 0.00 ERA over 22 innings against the Reds during the wild Card round tells you all you need to know about that series. Given the stretch of the Reds' pitching, which manifested against the Braves and the strength of the Atlanta offense, which mostly struggled until they got to Razel Iglesias in Game 2, that figured to be the heavyweight matchup of the series. If so, the Reds probably want that matchup, and yet, if you don't score, you don't win. As Bauer suggested, you can't blame the pitchers. The Marlins offense is not the Reds offense. It's more aggressive, far less dependent on homers, as is every other offense in baseball history, does more on the base path. Cincinnati's approach has been baffling all season, particularly when you consider how cutting edge is pitching how cutting edge its pitching operation is. Reds batters act as if someone heard the term "launch angle" on television, and that's as far as they got. Atlanta's pitchers, particularly starters, Freed and Anderson, inundated Reds hitters with soft stuff down and away, often off the plate, mixed with high, hard stuff. It's a classic formula, of course, but the keys were the mix. More soft than hard, more off the plate than in the zone. Miami's approach against soft and breaking stuff during the season was to simply not try to do too much with it. The Marlins ranked 28th in isolated power against those pitches, but they were 10th in the batting average and 3rd in BABIP. They didn't try to crank everything out the yard, but instead tried to simply put bat on the ball. It's the anti-Reds approach. The unfortunate part of this plan is that as we've seen time and again, Stringing together hits during the postseason is a tough way to put up runs. So, when the Marlins get guys on base, they'll need someone like Jesus Aguilar, Brian Anderson, or Garrett Cooper to muscle up Red Styles. Get Starling Marte healthy. The Marlins probably aren't better than the Cubs, given a large enough sample of games, but they are closer to Chicago than they are to Atlanta. And Chicago's current level might be closer to that of Miami than that of the Braves. The thing is, the Braves are just really good, and after battling injuries all season, they have enough of their key weapons in place to be the Dodgers' biggest threat in the National League, especially given the injuries to the San Diego rotation. It goes without saying that the Marlins need all of their weapons. When Marte suffered a non-displaced fracture after being struck with a pitch in Game 1 against the Cubs, it might have taken Miami's best position player out of the game. Out of the mix, excuse me. Hopes remain that he can play through the injury. But the Marlins closed out Chicago with Marte watching from the dugout. Miami has a fraction of firepower of the the Braves, at least among position players. Marte helps close that gap a little bit. Any hope for Miami to pull off their upset relies on keeping scores low and hoping for one key multi-run blow from one of their veteran hitters. Marte is among their most likely sources to provide such a blow. So there you have a look at what's to come between the Atlanta Braves and the Miami Marlins. So let me bring you back up to speed as to what's going on. With halftime scores right now, number 13, Texas A&M find themselves trailing. Number two, Alabama. 35-14, 35-14, so don't feel like there's going to be any duplicate of the 2012 Johnny Manziel magic. Also at the halftime, number 12, North Carolina is holding on to a 21-16 lead over Boston College. Eleven thirty-one to go in third quarter, and Cincinnati has the ball. The Bearcats of Cincinnati, ranked number 15, has a 14-0 lead over University of South Florida. 13 minutes and 14 seconds to go in the third quarter. Right now, number 17, Oklahoma State is basically walking through the park as they have a 38-0 lead over the Kansas Jayhawks. And at halftime, and the score that was once 24-3 is now 24-20. Number 25, Memphis has fought their way back into this game, trailing at the half by a score of 24-20 to SMU. Games that have gone final, number three, South Carolina. Knocked, number three, Florida knocks off South Carolina, 38-24. In an upset in Austin, the TCU Horned Frogs knock off the tech, number nine, Texas Longhorns, 33-31. Also, another game that's gone final, number 21, Tennessee knocks off Missouri by the score of 35-12. Another upset, NC State goes on the road and knocks off University of Pittsburgh on their home turf by a score of 30-29. to 29. Games that are coming up later, number seven, Auburn takes on number four, Georgia. That game will be seen on ESPN. Uh, Tulsa travels to number 11, University of Central Florida. That game can be seen on ESPN too. The line on that is UFC minus 20.5. That game will be shown at 6.30. Also, number sixteen, Mississippi hosts Arkansas. Game starts at six thirty. Will be seen on the SEC Network. And also coming up, game that will be seen on ABC at six thirty p.m. will be Oklahoma Sooners coming off their loss to Kansas State, taking on Iowa State Cyclones. That game will be played in Ames, Iowa. OU is looking to rebound from that upset loss last week. Also, number 20, LSU travels to Vanderbilt. And number one, Clemson will be playing host to Virginia. That game will also be seen on the ACC network. Clemson is favored by 28. So, those hope that will get you ready and set. For the rest of this college football season, this college football day, week number five. So we're five weeks in and we're still waiting for the other conferences to start playing. Uh, The Pac-10 announced their schedule. So they'll be ramping up here shortly. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at that right now. Actually, what I'm going to do right here, I'm going to take a break and slip in a word from my sponsor. And when I come back, I will wrap up the next segment, so stay tuned. A Train Sports Talk podcast. I'm your conductor, Anthony Smith.
2: What's your reaction
1: opening up against Stanford?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for applying that for us. You know, I hadn't seen it yet. It's the first time we get to see it, but brother, let's play ball. It's about time, right? <laughs> it's about time. Our guys are ready it. to roll. We've been at it. We've been watching everybody else play ball. Now it's our turn. Now it's going to be our turn real soon, so Let's put the ball in the tee. Let's kick it off. Let's play ball. Uh, there you go. If you, I don't know if you can see the screen. You got Stanford, then Wazoo. That's on the road. Then the game that uh, Kirk mentioned with UCLA coming in. That's on a Friday night. And then you got the rivalry game against Oregon State on the 27th. Now, Mario, you had a team that you felt like was a playoff contender, and perhaps they still are. But you've had some opt-outs as well, players choosing not to play during the pandemic. How has that impacted your outlook for the season? Well, you know what, in terms of our outlook, it doesn't change. We do what we do, and we have that next man up mentality and philosophy. But, look, there's no handbook for this pandemic. And our conference did everything possible in terms of player safety and health always at the forefront. So it's affected everybody differently. Guys have opted in, guys have opted out. And the bottom line is the Ducks will be ready to roll. We always preach that mentality. That's what we teach in our program. It's a culture that we do things a certain way and we train a certain way so we could do things on Saturday. In a certain way, so you know what, it's time to do that right now.
0: And there you have comments from Mario Cristobal, head coach of the number fourteen Oregon Ducks, who are scheduled to open against the Stanford Cardinal as Pac twelve unveils its football schedule. So the number four Oregon, number fourteen Oregon, the Pac 12s only ranked team, open play at home November seventh against Stanford as part of the league's seven-game football schedule announced Saturday. Despite the shortened season, the Pac-12 will still have two rivalry weekends. North Division rivals will play each other in Week 4. With this year's installments of the big game, Stanford at Cal, the Apple Cup, Washington at Washington State, and the Oregon at Oregon State game, all taking place on Friday, November 27th. The South Division rivals will face off in week 6. Arizona State will travel to Arizona to play for the Territorial Cup on Friday, December 11th, and the rumble in the Rockies between Utah and Colorado in Boulder will also take place that day. UCLA will host USC as they vie for the Victory Bell on Saturday, December the 12th. Though the rivalries remain intact. The atmosphere will be different this season. No fans will be allowed in any games on Pac-12 campuses because of the coronavirus pandemic. Every Pac-12 team will play the five opponents in its division, plus a divisional crossover game before the conference championship game. Preseason favorite Oregon plays UCLA at home in its crossover game on Friday, November 20th. The other crossover games are Arizona at Washington, Cowlitz, Arizona State, Colorado at Stanford, Oregon State at Utah, and Washington State at u s c Our guys are ready to roll. we've been at it. Oregon coach Mario Cristobal said Saturday morning on college game day we've been watch he said we've been watching everybody else play now it's our turn. The conference championship game will be held Friday, December eighteenth The teams that do not qualify for the title game will play an additional conference game against a squad from the opposite division the same weekend. Pac-12 teams will still be eligible for inclusion in the college football playoff, though the conference is playing the fewest amount of scheduled games among the Power 5 conferences. The Pac-12 title game is scheduled to be played just two days before CFP Selection Day on December 20, when the 13-member Selection Committee chooses the top four teams in the country. So, there you have it with the soon-to-be starting up of the Pac-12. So, football is slowly but surely getting back to full strength. My only drawback, pushback, as some of these other the rest of the Power 5 conferences get ready to ramp up, what does that do for teams that are in the AAC. What happens if you have a Memphis providing that they win their game today and UCF or Cincinnati comes down to it? Let's say they're undefeated. Those are quality wins against each other, but where would that put them as far as in the standings of maybe even an outside shot at cracking the final four? Because we know it best those bids are going to teams from power five. Especially if one is undefeated. Let's say Alabama's undefeated, you know they're absolutely getting in. Alabama can lose one game but they can still get in. It just depends on who they lose to. So is it a fair system? No. Do I think the college football playoffs need to be expanded to eight? And I'm not saying they should be expanded to eight just to give a Pac-12 team to the benefit of the doubt? No. But yes, I think it needs to be expanded to eight teams because you see when these non-Power 5 teams play these the big boys or the good old boys, they have a way of beating these teams. If you don't believe me, Go up to an OU fan and ask them how it felt to lose to Boise State and they still have a look on their face like did you really just bring that up as if it happened yesterday? So yes, I'm going to be one of the constituents sounding the bell. We need 18 playoff to make it fair for someone like A Cincinnati, or Memphis, or UCF. Because it's still a known deal that schools from the Power Five just do not want to put these schools on their schedule. Even though, let's take the SEC. Their commissioner years ago said, it's time for y'all to start scheduling better. Granted, the SEC is a monster conference within itself and teams beat each other up. And most teams coming out of that conference, they're pretty much respected and ranked. But still, I think it's time you open up and take on a UCF, take on a Memphis, take on an Appalachian State. What are you scared of? What is there to lose? especially if your team you're playing is a ranked team. Yeah, you may be highly ranked in them, but you're still playing a quality opponent. So that's my rant on what I think. Of course, I don't get paid for thinking. Of course, if I was on that committee, I would make my recommendation. I think you need to expand the playoffs from four to eight and cap it right there. Anyway, you've been listening to A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. I'm glad you tuned in and listen. Leave a comment, like the podcast, share the podcast, copy my links and share it. That would be greatly appreciated. I also want to let you know that this podcast is also uh, listener supportive. So if you want to support this podcast, especially if you're a small business, especially if you're a small black owned business, Feel free to support this podcast starting at ninety-nine cents a month up to nine ninety-nine a month with four ninety nine a month being the minimum ground. This has been A Train Sports Talk Podcast, your conductor Anthony Smith. Have a great weekend. I'll be back with you.